Hello and welcome to New Era Podcast. Today we are talking payments, payments big time. We have with us Mark Rennie Davis. Now Mark runs a company called Advistic and Advistic is, uh, specializes in payments uh, in particular, payment strategy and so on. I'm going to ask Mark to give me more details. Now Mark, it's right to describe you as a payment expert and industry advisor. Is, is that correct? Give us an intro- introduction please. Yeah, so the quick intro and thanks Ewan for inviting me today. So yeah, my background is in consultancy. I would say I have a specialism and, dare I say, a passion for payments. Uh, and I've been in this game for about 25 years with the advisory businesses of PwC, IBM and MasterCard. Lived on four different continents, served clients in over 25 countries. I've uh, been in the UAE for around eight years. And for the last seven years, I've been running and growing this, this business, Advistic Consulting. So, you know, we, we deal with clients from across the, uh, the, the, the payment infrastructure world. So, you know, it's included some government work, some retailer net, um, uh, network processes, schemes, um, really everyone that's in the model. And of course, fintechs as well. Um, market expansion, revenue growth, new deals and partnerships, commercial due diligence. Um, Really importantly, and this is something that really drove me to establish this business, is independence. Um, There's nothing else here on my sales docket apart from honest advice. Uh, So I'm able to speak my mind. Give, give us a sample of, of, of who, what types of companies are you, you mentioned a few there, but what types of companies are you working with? So recently it's included a large airline based in the Gulf, uh, a travel agency also based in the Gulf, one of the largest processors in the region, an African fintech, um, a government agency based in the Gulf. The, 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 there are challenges across the payment universe at the moment. And, and really everyone in the system is trying to understand their position in it and how they can maximize their benefit um, as a result of all the changes that are happening. What have you seen over the last eight years you've been, been here in UAE? What, what are you seeing changing? What's, and what's driving that, that, that perspective that you're discussing there? So I think the really big thing that comes to mind at the moment is the proactivity of governments and regulators. And there's an interesting combination of effects here, actually, because on on one hand, I think governments and regulators have seen the benefit of being proactive in building infrastructure. They've seen that upside. They're also driven by threats. So there's threats around privacy and security, which they are addressing, I, I think it's fair to say, surprisingly proactively. But also there are the threat of sanctions. Uh, and of embargoes even. So, you know, around the world, governments, I think, have been a little bit surprised and perhaps perturbed by the uh, decisiveness and speed with which sanctions were were brought to effect on Russia. And this has really, you know, caused a, uh, I don't want to say panic, but certainly an increase in the focused motivation in developing payment infrastructure, which is within government borders. So you're seeing governments creating programs around domestic card schemes. You're also seeing, of course, instant payments. These things have been going on for years. They're not new, but there is a new impetus here. And and I think there are major 
implications for all payment, uh, all parties in the payments industry as a result of this. Really stimulating here, Mark. Now, I wonder, could you could you go into a little little detail? No names, but you know, what 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 should the what should the payment operators be thinking? What should the government or what, what yeah. do you see people thinking? No, this, this this is very interesting because I said, you know, the the structure of the industry is it is changing as a result of the infrastructure that that governments are investing in. I think it's fair to say that this is not changing so much. Cross-border payments, there's increased vigilance of cross-border to combat uh, funding of terrorists and, of course, just the general anti-money laundering requirements that governments have when looking at cross-border payments. But, but I think the biggest impact here is on domestic payments. And you can see a lot of the... Uh, domestic card payment infrastructures being built are really being focused on domestic payments. Now, the the impact here is interesting for uh, payment schemes such as Visa and MasterCard and Amex and and others around the world. You know, they've always relied on domestic payments as being a source of revenue. I think this is now under threat. They've always made more money from cross-border transactions. But now I think those organizations are going to have to focus much more on developing that revenue stream on that cross-border uh, revenue, as well as developing value-added services around domestic payments. So if, if you've got some uh, transaction banking or, or uh, card, card people listening from various different banks uh, across the region, what would you be advising them? What, what's your perspective on what they should be doing, given, given what you're saying about the government action? I think, honestly, bringing it back to basics, uh, you know, banks are brilliant at franchising risk and, and lending. The payment infrastructure provides revenue in the form of interchange. And if you're in the credit card business, interest and annual fees, etc. This is not going to change for a while. But in the very long term, we're going to see those many of those sources of revenue really be put under significant pressure. So, so, so I think if you're a bank, the, the, there is significant benefit in kind of rethinking where payments is overall in, in how you generate revenue. Having said this, it is a long time into the future where payments are going to be so frictionless that no revenue can be generated for financial institutions who are in the payments industry. I think that is really some way off. I think we're looking at 20 years, 25 years for that. You know, at some point, we're all going to end up with a biometrically enabled, completely frictionless, totally embedded and integrated payment system. The closest to that, I think, in the world is, is you know, in China. They're pretty close to that. 80% of all transactions are electronic. It's biometrically enabled. But here's the interesting thing, and, and this was reported this week. Alipay and WeChat Pay have formed partnerships with Visa and MasterCard. So, you know, even, even those most developed, most high-tech and, and highest uptake of electronic payment environments have some reliance on the, on the card rails. And for this reason, I, this and other reasons, I think card rails will be around for a very long time. They're not going away, but in term, to answer your question directly, for a bank, long term, I think you need to be looking for other sources of revenue. 
Mark, say say a little bit about your your attitude on on, on what what would you be saying to the payment processors in the region, right? There's some big and small ones. What should they be thinking about, given what you're suggesting? I I think they've got two options. The first is be specialist and serve specific merchant verticals in a way that meets their needs exactly, with the right level of service and the right combination of value-added services. On the other hand, you know, beyond the specific merchant vertical, your other option is to be huge and to bring major scale and therefore really low cost transactions. Mark, the other key aspect, I think, in the payments ecosystem are the merchants. And I think we've got you know, the small players, mid-size, but I'm, I'm really interested in your perspective on what would you be saying to some of these larger merchants? You know, what's their strategy for the next couple of years and beyond? I think that there's a number of opportunities there. One thing that's really important and continues to be important is loyalty, especially credit card co-brand driven loyalty. Right. So, so this is one area that I think certainly pretty much every market in the Middle East has an opportunity to develop in terms of maturity. There are huge opportunities, huge profit pools that are going unaddressed in the co-brand space. Um, and, and this obviously, you know, for any merchant who's, who's large, especially if they have some sort of uh, loyalty or rewards program, it really brings engagement and volume and new members to that program. You know, it also encourages new customers to your store, customers who are brought in because of a strong credit co-brand deal. Um, and customer value proposition. Big opportunity. One thing I wanted to ask you about, Mark, was um, the Talibat card with um, mm-hmm. Abu Dhabi Commercial Bank uh, launched last week. What's your view on that? I think that that is a great thing for Talibat and a great thing for ADCB and, and also for MasterCard, I think, of the, uh, the scheme there. You, you know, co-brands are win-win. Uh, no doubt about that. ADCB are getting transaction volume that they otherwise would not have done. They're getting card fees and interest they would not otherwise have done. Talibat are getting food orders that they would not have otherwise got, right? So so all rounds, this is win-win. I think importantly as well, not only is it for Talibat increasing the volume of sales that they are making, but they're actually accessing an, a completely new segment of customer customers that would have previously gone with their competitors have been attracted into you know talibat membership as a result of uh, what looks like quite a convincing customer value proposition are you advising or do you recommend that other uh, other such brands really give some thought to the possibility of, of a core brand like that oh strongly strongly you know, the, as I said, this is something where there are the, there's opportunity, and I don't think the market is as mature here in the Middle East, particularly in the Gulf, where I am focused on on this co-brand opportunity. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, I think if there is a large retailer with you know a, a fairly faithful customer base who they you know and, and they see an opportunity to increase the loyalty and faithfulness of that base here is a big opportunity covid 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 what happened you know has that supercharged the market from your perspective or has that enabled people to take a step back 
What, what's your perspective on COVID and how that affected the payments market? So in terms of consumer electronic payments, I think it represented a step change. In electronic payments generally, particularly e-commerce, this is something that's well known and has been seen around the world, particularly strong in this, in this region. And often, again, you know, sponsored and encouraged by the government, certain laws or, or regulations were put in place in Saudi Arabia, for example, that, that actually, you know, kind of opened the door for electronic payments that in a way that hadn't been the case so far. Now, e-commerce in Saudi Arabia before COVID, I think received something like 70% of, of payments for e-commerce were still made in cash, you know, cash on delivery. And there's been a step change in that as a result of COVID. But when COVID was over, the trends continued. And, and now that percentage is, is much, much lower. So, so yeah, COVID has had a major effect. The, the other thing is that, you know, as I said, it, step change is one thing, but, but I think it's also provided the impetus for individuals to shift from cash to electronic payments to a point now where we're seeing a lot of countries in the Gulf are reaching saturation point. You know, I'm not forced to use cash in most retail situations. If I choose to use electronic payments, I have the ability to do so. You know, some consumers prefer to use cash for different reasons and may that long continue. There is demand for it, it works. Many merchants who pay their vendors in cash prefer cash. So I think cash will continue alongside, but yeah, to answer your question directly, COVID has been a, had a major impact on electronic payments. What about the tech companies? What influence are you seeing from them, the Apples, Googles, and so on? How, how influential are they in this, in this region, do you think? They've certainly had some influence. I mean, the, you know, most notably, it's, it's probably Apple Pay, Samsung Pay. But look a little more closely there. What we're seeing is, you know, some really nice technology laid on top of the old 35-year-old four-party international scheme card model with, with interchange and fees. So, you know, really, I think in, in, in terms of influence, that hasn't really influenced the infrastructure, the structure of the market. It's just changed the tech on top. So th there's certainly an opportunity for big tech to get deeper. The question is, you know, here in the UAE, in, in Saudi, Kuwait, Bahrain, Oman, does it really benefit us to let big tech in through the door and you know certainly in the way that has happened in the US compete directly with established FIs you know I, I personally don't see a major benefit in doing that and you know some people will strongly disagree with me on this I may sound a little cynical but I don't really think that there's an opportunity there. This is a particularly exciting region for crypto. We're constantly hearing from the regulators about new this and new that. And there's lots moving in, in crypto. What role do you think crypto is going to play, play ongoing in, in the payments marketplace? So it is an exciting region for crypto. I'm, I'm not as excited as a lot of people. I think it's fair to say. Crypto is fantastic technology. Or, or, or blockchain beneath it is a fantastic technology. Cryptocurrency, in my opinion, is still looking for its perfect use cases. So, you know, Bitcoin will sustain for individuals who, you know, have the courage to invest in an asset class like that, that has that level of volatility. 
you know, it, it, is a, it is a tool for speculation. It's useful in that respect. But, you know, the limitations around it, which are well known and well publicized, I think really do prevent it. Uh, and similar currencies as well from, from really gaining foothold in retail. That's in person and, uh, and also online. The reuse cases, for sure. And, and I think one that is likely to come to fruition in this region are central bank digital currencies, very much in their infancy. I think it's fair to say that governments are feeling them out at the moment. They're being put in place, pilots are being launched, it's being studied, it's the subject of, you know, a thousand white papers, driven by perhaps, driven by and driving the fact that the US dollar may not be the default currency for international trade forever. And, uh, and also, you know, j j just the, the brilliance of the technology underneath CBDCs, the programmability of the currency, for example, major upsides for governments and for regulators. I think it's fair to say, like, like everything in this space, you know, the real benefits will only come when it has been regulated. And the question is, will regulation remove some of the really cutting edge benefits? And I think there's a balance there that, that all governments uh, need to take very seriously. Now then, Mark, coming to the end here, this has been awesome. I really appreciate you taking all the time here. But I, I have a, a, a specific question for the payments expert. How do you pay? What's your, what, what's your go-to? Are you a cash-only man or what, what's the thing? I am not a cash-only man. Probably uh, you're not surprised to hear that. But I do see a need for cash and I do keep cash in my wallet. I'm still not convinced that when I, when I tip waiting staff, for example, or taxi drivers in this country that they ever get to see it. I'm not, I'm not convinced that they do. So I tip with cash where I can, which I think increases the chances that, that you know, it goes in someone's pocket. I am a big fan, no surprise, of co-brand cards. Uh, I love Emirates Skywards Miles. And, you know, I love collecting points. And I'm a big sort of loyalty junkie in that respect. So, you know, first and foremost, it's, it's co-brand. And, uh, you know, after that, it's a bit of cash. If I'm traveling, my preference is to use prepaid travel cards where I can guarantee the FX rate. Or if I've got a bank account in the country that I'm traveling to when I travel to the UK, for example, I use uh, wise.com to get, to get a good rate because ultimately nothing is ever going to beat peer-to-peer -peer FX models. And, you know, I think ultimately it's a race to the bottom with FX driven by peer-to-peer. -peer. It's a long, slow race to the bottom. In fact, that race is a marathon rather than a sprint. Now, Mark, for those listening, thinking, we need to have a chat. We need to speak to that Mark guy, right? We need to speak to Mark, get his advice. How do people contact you? What's the right way of contacting you and the company? Reach out by email, mark at advistic.com or uh, Mark Rennie Davis on LinkedIn. Fantastic. Mark, can I say thank you for taking the time? Really appreciate it. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you very much, Ewan. It's been a pleasure.